good morning everybody and uh, welcome to Church at Home. Uh, my name is Simon Clegg and I'm the pastor of St Barnabas Bible Church here in Cape Town, South Africa. If uh, you're with us for the first time, we're delighted you've joined us and I do hope that by the grace of God our study this morning will be an encouragement to you, even as you continue in fellowship with your local church. If you'd like to know more about us um, or you'd like someone on the team to contact you, do please visit our website www.sbbc.org.za and uh, on the home page you'll find a contact tab and you can leave your contact information there and someone on the team will get back to you in the course of the week. Now this morning we're continuing with our series in the Gospel of Mark and uh, the title of our study this morning is The King's Patience and uh, before I read the passage I'm going to pray and ask for God's help. Uh, Won't you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you speak to us through the words of Scripture. Thank you for the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the way that he reveals to us your mind and heart. And so now we pray for minds that are active to receive that truth, for hearts that are open to understand it, and for wills to put it into practice. And we ask it for the glory of your holy name. Amen. So then our reading this morning is Mark chapter 6, and I'm going to read from verse 45 through to verse 56. Mark 6, verse 45 through to verse 56. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out, because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns or countryside they placed the sick in the marketplaces they begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak and all who touched him were healed well just so far in God's holy and inerrant word now one of the signs that God is at work in a person's life is that they learn to be patient Now that's the way it's always been, both in the lives of individual Christians and of course in any kind of Christian work. 
that William Carey served as a missionary in India for seven whole years before the first person was converted. Adoniram Judson preached also for seven years in Myanmar or Burma as it was then before his preaching produced any results at all. Uh, in West Africa it was 14 years before missionaries saw the first conversion. In New Zealand, nine years. In Tahiti, 16 years before a single person responded to the gospel. Now today I think it's true to say that kind of patience is very rare. But my hope this morning is that you will see that Jesus Christ has tremendous patience and especially patience for the growth of his people. Now I guess you might say to yourself, well actually that doesn't really interest me because I'm mature and I'm going pretty well in the Christian life, I'm growing, I'm pretty smart. That may be true. But I think this passage teaches us that when it comes to Christian things, you and I are not natural growers. But Jesus is a patient teacher. Uh, to get us started, I want to remind you that Mark's Gospel is essentially a sermon. Uh, originally, it was prepared for the church in Rome, uh, a church that was battling with all kinds of pressures and difficulties, just as many churches are today. And the sermon has basically two points. Uh, the first point is answering the question, who is Jesus? That's in chapters 1 to 8. And the second point is addressing the question, what did he come to do? And that's in chapters 9 to 16. So we're still very much in the first half of the book, trying to work out who Jesus is. Uh, so far we've seen that Jesus provides lots of teaching, uh, lots of amazing deeds to help us gain an accurate understanding of his identity. Last week we saw him feed a crowd of between 10 and 15,000 people from almost nothing. And at the end of the feeding, Jesus' expectation is that his disciples are coming to faith. I do think it's safe to say that he really is hoping that his disciples have begun to get it, uh, that the lights are really turning on for them. Why do I think that? Well, I'll give you three reasons. First, the, the feeding miracle was so clear and so obvious that I think Jesus assumed he, that they'd understood it. Then second, in uh, chapter 8 and verse 21, Jesus is obviously shocked that they haven't worked out who he is. Because in that verse he says to them, do you still not understand? And it seems that Jesus is surprised and even disappointed, but apparently they don't. And uh, the third reason that I think Jesus really does think his disciples have come to faith is that he's about to do something on the water that is designed to build their faith. He's not planning to start it, he's planning to increase it. So I want us to look at our passage this morning from verse 45 to verse 56 under two headings. First, the desire of Jesus to increase faith, and then secondly, the patience of Jesus with weak faith and we'll spend most of our time on that so first the desire of Jesus to increase faith 
Now have a look at verse 45 because we're told there that Jesus dismissed the crowd. By the way, I think that's a bit of a surprise uh, because last week we discovered that Jesus could see that the crowd were like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, they desperately needed a leader and Jesus began to provide the kind of leadership they needed first of all by teaching them (coughs) and then by feeding them. But now, amazingly, Jesus says to them, please go home. And that's a surprise, but I think it's telling us that Jesus has a more urgent priority, which is to continue the the training program with his disciples. So Jesus puts the disciples into the boat, he sends them out across the water. But Jesus remains on the land and he's praying, the disciples are on the lake and they're struggling. And about the fourth watch of the night, which is somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., he walks out to them across the lake. And uh, we read that, and perhaps some of us think, yes, of course he does. He was doing that sort of thing all the time. But how many times actually does Jesus walk on the water? The answer is just once. And it comes immediately after the feeding of the 5,000, And it's recorded in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John. Now, is this a magic trick? Uh, Some experts have suggested that uh, Jesus only appeared to walk on the water. They say it was an optical illusion, and that in fact Jesus was really only paddling in the shallows. That, of course, is nonsense. Uh, The disciples were experienced seamen, Uh, They knew the lake backwards and if Jesus was merely paddling they wouldn't have reacted in the way that they did. No, the eyewitness testimony of these experienced fishermen is that the lake is being battered by strong winds. There are big waves. We're told that in the Gospel of John. So this is a miracle. This is Jesus completely mastering a lake in the middle of a storm walking on the water. Now, why does Jesus do this? Well, he does this because if they have worked out that he is God because of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, this miracle of walking on the water is going to make that point even more persuasively. It's as if Jesus is saying to the disciples, did you get the miracle of the feeding? Yes, you did. Well, now look at this. I'm walking on the water. And in the Old Testament, it says that only God can do that. So, Psalm 77, for example, says, You, O God, go through the mighty waters. You see, to human beings, water is an alien environment. (coughs) But you, Lord, you go through the mighty waters. And Isaiah 43 says, The Lord made a way through the sea. Uh, God did it at the Red Sea to rescue the people from Egypt. He does it again at the Jordan in order to get his people into the promised land. And here he is again in command of the sea. And uh, most accurately, and I think significantly, it says in the book of Job, God alone treads on the waves of the sea. 
So you see, Jesus came to the disciples like this not because he's coming to rescue them. He could merely have spoken a word to the sea from the shore to do that. Rather, he's coming to show them unmistakably that he is God who alone treads the waves of the sea. Now there's one phrase in uh, chapter 6 and verse 48 which I think is really wonderful and especially significant. It's the little phrase that says he was about to pass by or literally he wanted to pass by. Now that may not sound especially significant to us. You may not even have noticed it as I read the passage. But it is a strange phrase, isn't it? Jesus is walking on the lake. Why on earth would he want to pass by the disciples? And uh, the commentators over the years have come up with some extraordinary suggestions about it. So one of them says, it's possible that he was fed up with the disciples and he was going to leave them completely. Another one says, uh, it only looked from the boat as if he was passing by, but he wasn't really. And still another one says, he was racing them to the other side. Well, that's really the counsel of desperation, isn't it? And they're all missing the point. Because the phrase pass by has its roots in the Old Testament. You may may remember that this is what God did to Moses. So, uh, in the book of Exodus, the people of God have just received the Ten Commandments. Moses was up on the mountain receiving the commandments on tablets of stone from God. And while Moses was away, Uh, the people of Israel make and worship a golden calf. And uh, this extraordinary idolatry, while Israel was still on their spiritual honeymoon, provokes the righteous anger of God. And as Moses comes down the mountain, he breaks the tablets in sheer frustration. And when he gets to the golden calf, he grinds it into powder and he makes the people drink it. And then Moses, of course, gets on his knees and he's thinking to himself, you know, this is the end of the road for Israel. We're finished. We have this marvellous covenant from Almighty God, but we've completely messed it up. It's broken beyond repair. And you see, it's in that moment of great discouragement that God says to Moses, come up on the mountain tomorrow and I will pass by. And what happens is that Moses goes back up the mountain and we read in Exodus 34 that the Lord did pass by and as he passed by he revealed as much of himself to Moses as it was safe for Moses to see and hear and God said at that time as he passed by the Lord, the Lord the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger full of compassion And we read that Moses, in response, bowed down and worshipped. Now, why did Moses do that? Well, because he realised that the character of God was the solution to the problem. And then this phrase, to pass by, appears again in the life of Elijah. Elijah's heard that Queen Jezebel is out to kill him, and if he dies, there'll be no more prophets left in Israel, he thinks. And without a word from God... Through God's prophet, it will be the end of the road for Israel. 
So Elijah runs out of the promised land and he goes to the same cave where Moses had been hidden when God passed by. And there he tells the Lord how desperate things were and the Lord, seeing Elijah's desperate state of mind, again passes by. And as he passes by, God reveals his power through an earthquake, through wind and through fire. And then he puts Elijah back on course for his mission and his ministry. So can you see that in both situations, with Moses and with Elijah, there is this absolute despair and God responding to that despair by passing, um, passing by in order to reveal what he's really like. Now when we come to Mark chapter 6 and we find this little phrase again, did you notice that God does not pass by Jesus? It's not as if God is looking down from heaven and saying, well Jesus is finding things really rather tough down there, so I better pass by to encourage him. It's not that. No, Jesus passes by the disciples. More accurately, I suppose we should say he plans to do it, he wants to do it, and the reason that he wants to do it is because he wants to increase their faith. So what is this passing by phrase really all about? Well, it's revealing more of his divine nature. It's revealing more of the majesty of Jesus, more of the sufficiency, uh, more of the perfection of Jesus Christ. Uh, if they've understood the feeding miracle, and if they understand the walking on the water miracle, both saying that Jesus is God, then they will also understand that Jesus is wanting to increase their faith by revealing his divine nature to them more completely. But of course the disciples can't cope with it. Uh, they don't really get who Jesus is. And they can't deal with what he's doing. And we read in verse 50, they were terrified. So at this point, the disciples are not people of faith, are they? They're people of fear. They thought he was a ghost and they cried out in terror. <clears throat> Excuse me. So what is Jesus going to do now? Um, he wants to show them his divine nature. Is he going to steamroller them into believing? He certainly has the power to do that. He certainly wants them to believe. But instead of steamrollering them into believing, he, he changes his whole approach because they're so frail, so weak, and he changes his plans completely. And that brings us to our second point this morning, which is the patience of Jesus with weak faith. We've seen the desire of Jesus to build faith, to increase it, but now we see the patience of Jesus with weak faith in verse 50 and following. And I think there's a really important lesson we need to learn for ourselves here and a grace that we need to ask God to develop in us. I'm sure I need that and I, I, I believe you do too. Because people, you see, are very slow learners, aren't they? Uh, Luke Short uh, lived in the 18th century. He was 100 years old when he became a Christian. Isn't that marvellous? At the time he was sitting under a, in a field under a hedge and he suddenly remembered a sermon that he'd heard preached 
by the great Puritan preacher John Flavel. And he especially remembered at the end of the service that Flavel had got up and had said to the congregation, well, it's now time to be dismissed, but how can I do it when so many of you are heading for hell? And that sentence stayed in Luke Short's mind for, wait for it, 85 years. And 85 years later, having heard those words as a 15-year-old boy, the penny finally dropped and Luke Short put his trust in Jesus Christ. Apparently he was given a further 15 years of life in which he was very active in the Lord's service, warning people not to wait as long as he had. And on his gravestone, it said something like, born and the year of his physical birth, and then reborn at the age of 100. Now, we might not be as slow at learning as Luke Short, but in spiritual matters, most of us are slow learners. There is something in our hearts that is not naturally drawn to spiritual things. If we are drawn to spiritual things, my friend, well, that is a work of grace. And I want you to see this morning how Jesus not only deals with his disciples, but also with complete outsiders, with very, very great patience. And I want all of us to see the application of this for us, and I hope that when the service is over this morning, that you will remember that Jesus has been very patient with you, and continues to be very patient. And I'm hoping that something of his grace will be at work in you and through you. So look with me at verse 50. Uh, Everything that Jesus hoped would happen on the lake hasn't happened. The plan has fallen apart. He wanted to build their faith, but they're full of fear and unbelief. And so in verse 50, Jesus says to them, uh, take courage, be comforted. It is I, or literally, I am. And then he says to them, don't be frightened. You know, Jesus is very gracious to them. But then what does Jesus do? Well, he gets into the boat, he he stops the miracle which is frightening them, uh, which was the walking on the water, and uh, he puts away any idea that he's going to reveal more of his divine nature to them at this point. He stops the wind because that will help them to remember who he is. But then what does Jesus do? And this is absolutely fascinating. Because in chapters 7 and 8, we're going to see that Jesus goes on a far longer journey with these disciples than he originally intended in order to help them believe. He is so patient with them. So please notice with me in verse 45 that Jesus had been planning to go to Bethsaida. But they haven't ended up in Bethsaida because in verse 53 they actually landed at Gennesaret. That's nowhere near Bethsaida. And what does Jesus do after verse 53? Well, more miracles. With great patience, he performs more miracles for the benefit of his disciples. And then in chapter 7, there's more teaching, followed by yet more miracles, including healing a deaf man, so that the disciples will realise that they need to be given the gift of hearing spiritually. And then to cap it all, 
Jesus does another feeding miracle as if to say to the disciples have you got it now? And then he heals a blind man as if to say to the disciples you can't really see yet can you? And you know it's only in chapter 8 and verse 22 that they finally get to Bethsaida where he'd been planning to go ever since chapter 6 and verse 45. And shortly after that Jesus asks the disciples who do you say that I am? And Peter speaking on behalf of all of them says with great faith you are the Christ. So can you see Jesus changes his program because of the weakness of the disciples. Jesus is very, very patient also with outsiders. It's painful enough, isn't it, that the disciples are confused. It's painful enough that the disciples apparently have hard hearts. I mean, he always expected that his enemies would have hard hearts. But what must it have been like for Jesus working with disciples when their hearts are hard? But you see, look at what Jesus does with these unbelieving outsiders in verse 54. Because you see, these crowds are consumers, aren't they? All they want from Jesus is that he will fix their problems immediately. And very graciously, he does. I think the the episode on the lake must have been a massive disappointment for Jesus. And yet, far from being grumpy uh, or resentful or isolating himself, Jesus is concerned for others. And this, this long queue of people standing in front of him, they've got no interest in his honour. They've got no interest in worshipping him. The only reason they've come is because of their aches and pains. And in spite of his disappointment, Jesus is so gracious and so generous towards them. And he stoops down to meet their immediate needs. And he heals the sick. uh, And he even makes concessions to their superstitions as they touch the edge of his cloak. Now you see, friends, this is the Lord Jesus, isn't it? He's gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and compassion. He's full of patience. And friends, I find this very moving. I find it moving the way that he deals with these unbelieving outsiders and the way that he deals with his disciples. And I want to say to us this morning that it's the same today. I mean, think of the way that the Lord Jesus Christ provides for the people of Cape Town. He's given us his word, we're free to listen to it, and over the years some of the most effective Bible teachers in the world have come to Cape Town. And yet, we have to say, don't we, that there is this stubborn hostility uh, and resentment and resistance and avoidance and unbelief. And uh, think of his patience with people watching services and listening to sermons online at the moment. Uh, Don't misunderstand me on that. Uh, I'm always delighted if anybody should listen. But can I say that it is possible that your life at the moment is life with a small L and uh, that your life is running on your own batteries. Can I say to you that sooner or later those batteries are going to run down 
and you're going to find yourself face to face with the judge of all the world and you will be given the sentence of separation. Not because you're not a good person. You may be a much better person than me or than any of the other Christians you know. But no relationship has yet begun with Jesus the Saviour. So saying with the illustration of the batteries, if you haven't taken the power cord which is hanging off you and it's got a label attached to it saying make a decision. If you haven't taken that power cord and pushed it into the grace of Jesus Christ and said I want to belong and I need to belong the fact is your batteries are going to run down. Unless in the time you've been given you join yourself to Jesus Christ by faith. Because he's extending this wonderful invitation to you. What have you done with it? And of course, we also need to be very patient with unbelievers, don't we? As we wait for children to believe, as we wait for parents to believe, as we wait for friends to believe, uh, we do need to be patient with the people that we're talking to because some of them are going to be a bit like the man that I mentioned who took 85 years to respond to the gospel. And we can't force anybody to become a believer We can't argue anybody into the kingdom. No, our task is patient explanation and the faithful witness of a transformed life. And then consider, will you, how patient Jesus is with the disciples because as he was with the twelve then, so he is with disciples like us. And I wonder as you're listening to this today whether you could say that you've lost actually a lot of blessing and a lot of insight and a lot of growth and a lot of wisdom either through fear or unbelief or sheer hardness of heart. That would certainly be true for me. And how much have we missed just by being stubborn? How much have we lost by being resistant and yet how carefully and patiently he has led us how many times he's forgiven us how many times he's taught those same lessons again and again and again I mean how many times have you found yourself learning again those really important lessons repent or believe or trust or obey And Jesus patiently brings these things back to us again and again. And uh, I wonder if some people listening this morning are thinking to themselves, you know, I am still only in spiritual primary school, either because of an inability or an unwillingness to grow. How much have you missed because there's been no humility, no openness, and therefore your own spiritual journey has been painfully prolonged because you see the message of our passage is that there is this great heart of the Lord Jesus Christ face to face with the very small hearts of people like us and friends you and I (coughs) need his patience if we're going to relate rightly to one another and care for one another I need that Uh, The Apostle Paul says that every pastor needs it. He says, 
the Lord's servant must not quarrel, must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. You would think, wouldn't you, that if there were going to be troublemakers in the church, uh, that God might sanction sending in the Christian equivalent of Clint Eastwood to sort them out. But Paul says, no, that isn't God's way. It is actually the gentle person who will turn things around and make progress. And you see, in every area of the Christian life and Christian ministry, great patience is needed, especially at the moment. Now, it includes parents waiting for your children to believe, or spouses waiting for your husband or wife to come to know Christ. It includes the pastor waiting for blind people to see, for immature people to grow, for worldly people to get rid of their idols, for the spectators at church to become soldiers at church, for proud people to start trembling at the word of God, and fearful people at church to grow in their confidence and assurance. So friends, this is what I hope you and I are going to take away from our passage this morning. Jesus on the water, wanting to give so much more, but finding that the disciples are just not ready, not willing, can't receive it. And yet still being so gracious and persevering with them, even with unbelievers whose agenda is totally different from his. And I hope that some of you will be saying to yourself this morning, I couldn't be more thankful for the way that the Lord Jesus has patiently put up with me and now I'm asking that he will give me more of his patience in the way that I deal with my loved ones and other believers in order that I might reflect something of his patient, gracious character. So let's pray for that together now. Our gracious God, we thank you for your great patience and kindness which we see supremely in the crucifixion of your Son. We thank you for your patience with us as believers. You've forgiven us. You've endured so much from us. And we thank you. We pray that by your Spirit you would give more of that patience to us so that as we deal with believers and unbelievers alike, we might show something of his grace and that you would continue to work in us and through us that which is most pleasing to you. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.